Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. John, how are you, sir? I'm great, Chris. Thanks. Thank you very much. Good morning. Yes. No, it's um, it's uh, very kind you offered to come or you agreed to come on the show. Thank you for your publishers for putting us in contact. How's the book doing? When when did you publish it? Well, it was published on September 6th uh, simultaneously in Ireland and in the UK. I mean, uh, in Ireland, the UK and the United States. Uh, there's different publishers for Ireland and for the US. And, you know, the publishers are telling me it's going very well. Uh, they're very happy with, with, with the progress on it. Um, I only found out uh, the other day it's going to be published in Italian. And apparently there's uh, negotiations on a few other languages as well. So we'll see how that goes. So that's a good sign. It's doing well when they're publishing it in another language. I would have said, John, oh, my God, like never going to be beast. Ne- no, 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 no. And... Uh... Lo and behold, whatever it is, 10, 15 years later, it still seems to be holding. Yeah. Um, maybe we can explore that later yeah. after, you, after you've told your story. Sure. So you did you grow up in the U.S.? I grew up in the United States. I was born uh, in uh, New York to Irish immigrant parents in 1957. Uh, my father was from County Roscommon. My mother was from Kerry, but they met in America. When I was born, my father was in the United States Air Force during a four-year stint. He joined the U.S. Air Force to accelerate his American citizenship and to get some technical training, you know, for work in that. But uh, we moved to Chicago when I was about two. And then uh, I went to primary school there. And I moved back to Ireland in 1972 when I was about 14. I'd been in Ireland a few times in summer holidays before that and all. But uh, I moved back to Ireland when I was 14, and I spent my teenage years in uh, Roscommon and in Dublin, going to school, going to secondary school, and leading a pretty, you know, conventional childhood. Uh, I loved Ireland, but I, I didn't have any, you know, I, I didn't grow up in any, I didn't grow up in the North. I didn't have any Republican connections, uh, any, you know, political uh, analysis that I developed, you know, I developed on my own understanding, on my own reading of the situation. I. I didn't have any mentor. I didn't have anybody talking about the troubles. I didn't have anybody talking about republicanism. It was just something I developed developed within myself. And of course, um, growing up in the United States, you know, the United States is a republic. Uh, so I probably, you know, had a, a republican sympathy anyway, having grown up in a republic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've, I've always and still maintained strong republican uh, beliefs. Uh, you know, my in my own personal belief system. That's basically it. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't indoctrinated. I wasn't, you know, uh, I, I didn't grow up hearing any propaganda. I, I didn't really grow, grow up hearing anything except what I heard in the news. And most of the news would have been anti-Republican anyway. So it really was, it really was a personal uh, development, uh, how I came to my own, you know, Republican position in life. Did I get this right? Did you join the U.S. Marines? to get experience to join the IRA or was that just something you, you, you did anyway? I joined to get experience to join the IRA. Well, in a way you see, I, I heard that, you know, and believed uh, that the IRA was this highly professional, highly sophisticated force. And, uh, but it was mostly from the British 
that were saying this. Um, so I didn't join the U.S. Marines with a view that the IRA needed my help or anything like that. I wasn't that um, presumptuous, you know, uh, that I was going to join the Marines, come back and, you know, uh, you know, be this person who was going to um, improve things. That that never crossed my mind. I joined the Marines for, for two reasons. One was to um, enhance my professional development. So when I did come b- back and join the IRA, that I would, uh, you know, be well be well trained. And the other was to test my commitment because I probably would have joined the IRA at 18, but I didn't know anybody in the IRA. It was a secret army. I didn't grow up in a Republican area. So I decided that if I joined the U.S. Marines uh, or the U.S. Army, whichever I I chose when I got there, that after four years, if I still came home and still joined the IRA, then then my commitment was genuine. It wasn't just notional. It wasn't just, uh, you know, an emotional reaction that it it was a genuine, you know, ideological commitment and that in fact happened uh i I joined the marines in uh may 75 i got out on the 29th of may 1979 at eight in the morning and at two that afternoon i was on a connecting flight to catch a plane back to ireland to join the ira so i i I was quite committed to that but again i I want to emphasize i i i didn't join the marines to uh to do anything else than enhance really my, my own professional development uh i kept hearing a what you know, that the IRA was this highly sophisticated professional organization. And I believe that. So I didn't think, to be honest with you, I didn't think the IRA were sitting around waiting on me to arrive. That's That, that never occurred to me. Mm. And they weren't. <laughs> I just want to say here and now, I, I was very fortunate when I was in the Royal Marines to spend time with the U.S. Marines. And just, it was very special, you know. it It's so special that, we, we met a load in, in a place called Siganella, which is on Sicily. Yes. There's a big air ba- American air base there. And our ship, I was on ship at the time, our ship had pulled in. One of the lads said to me, a chap called Steve, he said, Chris, do you want to go to this American base? It's it's across the other side of the island. So we hopped in, a, I think we hopped in a taxi, and I believe we went past Mount Etna, <laughs> I hope I hope I've got the right part of the world, but but there was some famous volcano in the background, and we've rocked up at this base, and we we actually met a, a, a they, they were having a festival that day, one of these things that Americans and Canadians do really well. They have this big you know daily festival, and and we sat down to grab a beer, and one of the um, air women we can call them that came over and said, Hey guys, you know, what are you doing? And we're like, Oh, we're British Marines. We've just come to say hi. Um, and she turned around and went, <laughs> she said, Hey, yeah. all you U S Marines, these Brits are here to drink you under the table. <laughs> <laughs> and that just began an absolutely fantastic weekend with these all blokes. Some were from New York, some were from like the mountains, you know, uh, yeah, just just a real varied bunch. But the one thing that we had uniting us is we were all Marines. So yeah, it yeah. it didn't matter U.S. Marines or Royal, yeah. or UK. It it, yeah. it it was just like the brotherhood. Um, well, well, I I, I taught. I never I never worked with the Royal Marines. Uh, I, I was in the Marine Recon and the Marine uh, is the Special Operations Capable Unit of the U.S. Marines. And uh, I eventually became an instructor at, at the Marine Amphibious Reconnaissance School at Little Creek in Virginia. And I never worked with the Royal Marines, but I um, uh, I was only in the Marines for four years. Had I been in longer, I'm sure I would have. 
But, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of Marines who, who had been with the Royal Marines and worked with them and, and liked them a lot. But I did, I did train uh, with the Parachute Regiment. Uh, well, I was an instructor. They came over to Little Creek and they were doing some amphibious boat training and things like that. And I was an instructor with them for about two weeks, you know, and mm. we got on, we got on great, but you know, we, you know, went out drinking and had a good time. Uh, you know, uh, I'm an Irish Republican, but, uh, and that's a political position, but, uh, you know, I don't have any personal animosity to anybody or, you know, it's not a personal, uh, argument with me, the, the political struggle between Ireland and the UK, it's uh, strictly political, you know, on mm. a personal level, I can get on with basically anybody, I think, you know, and uh, so, no, you know, I mean, people are people anywhere, really. It's it's the political leaderships and that that sort of <laughs> are the ones that uh, can often manipulate uh, the basic goodness and loyalty in people to do things maybe they wouldn't do if they knew the full if they saw the full picture. You know what I mean? Let's not mince our words. We've had twenty years of illegal conflict and all off the back of lies. Yeah. Um, we've lo- we've we've lost a, a lot of young men and women because of that. And as far as history is concerned, it's just prepared to keep rolling on and 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 not to even acknowledge it. And did you see any combat yourself? In no, not 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 in not in the Marines. No, um, I I joined in May seventy five because I was eighteen in May seventy five. The Vietnam War officially ended in April seventy five, so I missed Vietnam by a month. Not that not that I wanted to go to Vietnam or nothing, but I mean. You know, I mean, I had a, I would have had to go wherever the Marines sent me once I joined them. And uh, I got out in May 79. So that was probably the only four years of peace the U.S. Marines had because the year after that they were in Granada and then they were, you know, they were everywhere then. But I actually joined at a, at a point that was probably uh, low morale for the American military. Now, I found the U.S. Marines. I trained, uh, I went to Army Jump School at Fort Benning, you know, I, and I went to Navy Dive School. So I did inter, inter-service schools. But I found I did find the Marines that did have the highest esprit de corps and 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 and, and the, the most motivation of all the services in, in my feeling, or in my experience. But you see, uh, in May '75, it was the very end of the Vietnam War. In fact, when I did advanced infantry training, we were training on mock-up Vietnamese villages and all. We were still doing that. There was a you know there was a big low uh, there was a low morale in the U S military in general, not, not in the Marines. I never found low morale in the Marines, but generally in the U S military, there was low morale after Vietnam. Uh, the, the military didn't have a lot of respect for the American people because of the Vietnam war, you know, now I'm told if you're in the military and they see it, you know, they're all, thank you for your service and all this stuff. But back then it, it was, it was a different story. So, um, look, I, I, I joined, uh, to get training. I got training and I came home, but no, I didn't, I didn't see any, uh, any combat in, in the U S Marines. Uh, I probably joined, like I said, in the only four years that they weren't fighting somewhere. <laughs> but from what you said, John, you you got a whole load of quite high level experience. So I bet that made you a probably an exciting candidate for the for the IRA. D- did it not? Well, you would think so, but um, uh, the the IRA. Uh, one of the things that surprised me. Well, the very few people in the IRA had professional military training. Very few. That didn't surprise me. But what surprised me in the IRA was that people at a leadership level, at a very high level, had no real respect for training. I had no real interest in anything I, I had been involved in. I was trying to improve training and uh, and things like that. And uh, other uh, things I saw that I thought were wrong that could be very easily resolved, very easily improved. And there seemed to be no real interest at the top. In fact, I think they almost took it as a, a personal insult. 
you know, uh, you know, they wanted to hear they were the we were the best trained guerrillas in the world and mm. led by the best leadership in the world. And you know, it, it was very unprofessional. Now, the men on the ground, the active service volunteers on the ground, were always very keen to learn, very keen to improve and uh, to learn everything they could. But um, you know, the IRA leadership actually, uh, Martin McGinnis actually sent me to the states because they had an American accent, and I, you know, to buy weapons. And uh, I remember uh, at the time thinking, you know. I was an instructor in a U.S. Marine Special Operations Capable Unit. And, you know, I thought I had a lot more to offer than my accent, you know, but they didn't seem to appreciate that at all. Now, there were people, I, I met people, there were former Royal Marines in the IRA. There were former members of the Parachute Regiment. Uh, a lot uh, of former, IRA, a lot of IRA men had served in the British Army at some stage or the other, you know, mm. uh, especially in the early 70s, coming out of the 60s and all. So, and there was a lot had been in the Irish Army, so there was a pool of professional knowledge there. There, wasn't, there didn't seem to be the, the, the managerial skill at a leadership level to uh, do, say, a skills audit, put that together, you know, uh, and professionalize our training. We had, well, lucky for you and a lot of British soldiers didn't do that. But um, we had, uh, you know, so we had the school, uh, uh, we had the pool of uh, professional soldiers we had school teachers. I met quite a number of school teachers who'd been in the IRA who could, you know, write lesson plans, devise a course structure. And we had artists who could, you know, devise lesson plans. And all. It was all there. We had all the, the ability and the resources there, but it was never put together. It was never used. And um, uh, I used to wonder about that. But in time, uh, I came to the conclusion that I think we were quite infiltrated by, by British intelligence. And um, I believe that... Uh, we couldn't develop beyond a certain point um, because uh, certain people were in control who wouldn't allow that to happen. I'm sorry I, I, if I'm talking really vague and in No, here. no, John, you're absolutely not. Yeah. You're saying but, this. Uh, I can't be too specific, you know. You're saying the stuff that I think a lot of us have worked out for ourselves. What was that film that came out about 10 years ago? I, what I got from this film is a very intense film. I think a lot of it was set in Belfast and a lot of, you know, not horrible stuff was in it. Yeah. And and then right at the end, the whole like crunch of the film was, it was the, it was like MI6 controlling it all, you yeah. know? Or, yeah. um, well, I, I have to hand it now, you know, I have to hand it to the British intelligence services. They were very, very good at infiltrating organizations. I mean, See, one of the things is if you're an IRA volunteer on the ground, you're trying to stay alive from week to week, stay out of prison. Uh, you have no money, you have no resources. It's an extremely precarious uh, uh, place to be. But if you're like MI6, MI5, you're a professional intelligence officer, uh, you have a salary, you have a pension, you have all the time in the world to play the long game. And the British are very, very good at playing the long game. I mean, they have experience of it uh, because of their empire. You know, they're known for playing the long game. And, uh, you know, what they'll do is um, they, they might see, say, a dozen IRA volunteers. And they would say to themselves, well, this guy wants to win the war at all costs. But this guy over here, he wants to survive the war at all costs. So what we'll do is we'll take this guy out, this guy out, get him killed, get him arrested to make sure this guy rises to the top of the pile. You know, and it takes maybe 20 years. So it is a long game, but it paid it paid off in the end because we ended up with an internal settlement, totally in British terms, 
with uh, Irish nationalism more or less reconciled to British jurisdiction in the north, recognizing the lawful authority of the British Constabulary. Everything we fought against as Republicans, they have accepted. So I'm not saying it was totally uh, the doings of British intelligence, but it played a, a major role in, in recruiting people and in uh, turning the entire uh, philosophy and ideology of many people to a place it, it would never have been. So uh, I just want to emphasize something, uh, Chris. You know, when we talk about the peace process, and I don't support the Good Friday Agreement, and I'll explain that later if, if you wish, uh, mm. as I'm an Irish Republican. But I do support the peace. The peace. I support. You know, um, I su when they talk about the peace process, I support the peace, but I'm critical of the process because uh, I totally support the peace, and I would not advocate ending that. My problem with the process is that um, Good Friday Agreement calls for a so-called United Ireland where the British-Irish cleavage and national loyalties remains intact. And the whole purpose of Irish Republicanism for 200 years was to break the connection with England and for forge a joint civic identity in Ireland uh, and basically build a, a national democracy within an all-Ireland republic, which uh, the Good Friday Agreement isn't leading to. It's a so-called United Ireland. But at the heart, it's divided at the civic level. It's divided because it, it, it says you can still be British, you can still be Irish. But if you can still be British, uh, even though you've lived in Ireland for 500 years, that is sort of the you know, uh, antithesis of what we were fighting for. You know, And uh, well, I don't want to go into political lectures here or historical stuff. I don't want to go down those 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 rabbit holes because you know we could be here forever and but the thing about it is Irish Republicanism was actually founded by Irish Protestants of the um, 28 founding members of the Irish Republican movement in 1791 every one of them was a Protestant 26 of them were Ulster Presbyterians so how it developed to where it is today it's a long you know story and uh, um, uh, can't, can't we I, I, we can't really sort it today Chris but um, you know, but, 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 you know, I know, I know the narrative. I mean, I mean, there, there would be a lot of British people in Union Snow who would say we were wrong. We were criminals. We were terrorists. And, uh, you know, uh, and all that. I can write the script. But, um, you know, you know, the, the, there's two sides to every story. And um, every side, you know, tends to have people who believe only their side is right. I mean, it, it is important to, you know, to listen to the narrative of the other side and, 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 and try to... Um, accommodate that in some way but you do have to have a bottom line and for me the bottom line is the full freedom sovereignty and independence of ireland uh uh outside of that i'm quite you know open to to you know to to the views of other people you know but i don't believe britain should have any jurisdiction in ireland and it's based on conquest and i don't believe conquest gives democratic title um but again you know that's just i'm an irish republican and of course i would say that wouldn't i so <laughs> well it but it's an important point john because like i said earlier from from my own experience i never thought we'd get to this position today no way i thought the bombs more over the bloody stones that the kids used to throw at us i thought they'd still be flowing and of course i'm i think any rational human being is happy to see that the city's built itself back up sure. the barriers have come down you know, people of different faiths can can now mingle without sure. fear of you know not coming home one one night. But I, I'll say it again: I still find it 
fascinating that it's that it's still going. I would have. Oh, well, I agree, Chris. I know what you're saying. I mean, yeah, Irish people thought that. I, I mean, I wish I had a if I had a, a pound for every time I heard somebody saying this will never end. There's no solution in sight. Well, we still haven't got to a solution because even though there's there's peace, but I I would refer to without being pedantic, I would refer to it as pacification. We have pacification, but we don't have genuine peace because we still have that um, the root cause of the troubles is still there, which is the you know British jurisdictions claimed Ireland and the fact that you know uh, unionists who are minority in Ireland were made into an artificial majority in 1922 by partitioning Ireland. So that's still there. And the hatred and the bitterness you talked about is still very much there with a lot of people. You know, it's very much there. So uh, that's all in the mix. Uh, but it's good, you know, that there's no, um, that nobody's killing each other. I mean, obviously, that's any rational empathetic person would, would say that's a good thing. But, you know, whether uh, long term that can last, I'm not sure. I, I don't believe Republicans would ever uh, re-engage. But there, I think there is a possibility that if there ever was a border poll, and a vote for uh, a united Ireland, uh, you know, it's a possibility loyalists could 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 kick off again. It's impossible to say that when you have the root cause of of of, of a conflict not resolved, and it's not, uh, you can never fully say, you know, that uh, there won't be uh, trouble down the line. I hope there won't be. I mean, I certainly uh, wouldn't advocate it, but. Um, you know, knowing Irish history as I do, it's just you can just never, you know, tell what's around the corner. And then Brexit was another fly in the mix because um, uh, Brexit, uh, the majority of people in the north of Ireland uh, voted against Brexit and uh, including unionists. But yet, all you know, it's still it's still uh, going to affect Ireland. So it's hard to know, Chris. I mean, I, I'm like I'm obviously I don't have a crystal ball. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad uh, there's no uh, war at war. But um as an Irish Republican, I still would like to reach Irish Republican goals, and I would I would like to reach them that them, that peace peacefully, very much. So you know, I mean, I I I thought on this quite a lot over the years, and I've mentioned this on podcasts. You know, what is the way that a resolution can be found that everyone's happy with? I don't think that. Oh, sorry, did I cut across you there, Chris? No, 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 no. It's just basically that. I mean, I I I, I would be looking at some sort of unique um agreement it is a bit of an interesting situation where you have a a country and 32 is it 32 of its counties of Ireland as a whole, are, yeah. are, are controlled by another one especially one with a history that <laughs> that, that that england has 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 had but you know i mean i, th I think people recognize that it's almost as though you can never be whole until you get that. You know, I, I think people recognize that. Yeah. But of course, the fly in the ointment is the fact that the Protestants who lived there also, and, and, and I'm quite rightly, yeah. quite rightly in, 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 in their minds, and in, they've also got a claim. Sure. You know, it's almost like, you know, if you look at Australia and New Zealand, they've all had to come together and, and work it out. Um, you know, the Maoris and the Aborigines that, uh, and, and you, I mean, I've been in Australia, I've been in New Zealand and I've met people who are still a bit like yeah. this and like that. Yeah. Yeah. Maoris are just like, no, it's peace. We love our, you know, our European brothers and 
sisters, this is just the way it is. And then you get ones that they won't even freaking speak to you. Yeah. You know, you go, hello, fuck off. Is there a solution for Ireland and uh, by which I include the, the, the North? Uh, could it, could it ever be, or are human beings just, you know, beyond our abilities? Well, I don't think there's a solution that can please everybody. I don't think that's ever happened in world history anywhere. I mean, even the United States, uh, when the American Republic was formed, a third of the, a third of the American population were, were Tories, loyalists. Mm. And they weren't happy with the American Republic, and they wanted to maintain a British connection. And you find that when you decolonize anywhere in the world, you know, you have the Pied Noir uh, French settlers in Algeria. I mean, you know, you always have a, a, a rump of the population that's loyal to the metropolitan power that's loyal to the colonial power and don't want the status quo to change you're always going to have that but uh you know the the for, you know for for uh from our perspective uh people say irish republicanism needs needs to accommodate see irish republicanism in a way is the accommodation before the the republican movement the irish uh before the um uh the Irish Republican movement was first formed in the early 1790s by Irish Protestants exclusively. Uh, the goal of most Irish nationalists or rebels or whatever you want to call them was to reestablish a Gaelic aristocracy or just put a Catholic king on the tr- on the throne. It was actually Irish Protestants who came up with the, the idea that Irish people of whatever persuasion, once they broke the, conne- the, the constitutional connection with England, could live together as citizens and have a civic identity as Irish Republicans. Like I grew up in the United States and uh, you had your Irish neighborhoods, Italian, German, you had your African-American neighborhoods. You have, you know, a myriad of cultures, languages, uh, mind boggling, right? But you have loyalty to one overarching Republic. You're, you're a citizen of that Republic. If you take India, India with a population of over 2 billion people has, um, uh, 5,000 ethnic groups, 200 official languages in this constitution, recognized, yet it's one republic. And Ireland, you know, with two basic traditions, you know, we believe can be one republic. But when you have a foreign power in the mix, underwriting the supremacy of one side, uh, and, and you know, the British aren't doing that because they have any particular, you know, uh, love of Ulster Unionists. They're doing it, you know, uh, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of British people, uh, and no, no many English people in that, and they would often say, "Oh, we, you know, we, we'd leave Ireland tomorrow." You know, if you, you know, and, and I believe that. That, but you see, it's the intelligence and the security services don't want to leave this massive island on their western flank without having some sort of control here. That's why it was invaded in the first place, so that Ireland would never be a totally independent country that could bring in maybe a foreign power that could threaten England someday. That was always the raison d'etre. And uh, Ulster Union is, uh, is their excuse for staying here because we have to bear in mind that um, uh, the plantation of Ireland was only uh, started in 1608-1610. Britain claimed, England claimed jurisdiction in Ireland for hundreds of years before that when there was no unionist here. So what was their excuse then? There was no unionist. So what we're, what we're saying is, uh, to answer your question, Chris, if I can, mm. um, is there a solution that will please everybody? I don't believe there there is because um, there's the, the 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 people who are going to be upset by United Ireland are unionists, right? But there's there's two there's two Protestant camps in that. One is the Enlightenment Protestantism that uh, were the founding fathers of Irish Republicanism are, are are an important 
part of our national fabric and you know without which you know concepts of liberty democracy uh and republicanism could not have flourished without, without the protestant reformation and the um the uh breaking that institutional hold that the catholic church had on the medieval mindset for years where you know you know the world was a hierarchy and you had your place in it you were sir fuck you you stayed there you know it was the protestant reformation that broke that you know so it's very important we recognize Irish Republicans recognize the importance of that and the value of that Protestant tradition in Ireland. But there is also a, a Protestant tradition of planter supremacy, where they see themselves as the planters who came here to civilize the Irish, to act as an English an English civic garrison in this country, and they demand uh, a unique place in this country. And what we argue is, yes, you're a distinct community, but you're not a separate nation. And but and there can be no unique communities in a in, in a republic because a republic, everybody must be equal under the law. So, you know, you have distinct communities like you have in America, India, and in republics around the world, definitely. But, uh, you know, that uniqueness, that supremacy, that, that that feeling that they have from, you know, like the orange, um, say the orange order and the uh, the ones who celebrate the 12th of July and the bonfires and all, uh, they will never be reconciled to, to uh, they will never subject themselves if they can to the majority rule of the people in this country, never. Uh, and England still is making sure they don't have to. Uh, that That is a major part of the problem. Uh, sorry if I'm being a bit talking. No. I'm trying to get my thought process right. But to answer your question, is there, is there a solution that will please everybody? There, there couldn't be, because you're either a unionist or a nationalist or maybe a Republican. But uh, Tony Blair, you know, who was quite slippery, talked, when the Good Friday Agreement came out, he talked about creative ambiguity. In other words, you know, speaking with a forked tongue, they were telling the union, the reason the Good Friday Agreement came, came to being was because Republicans were being told that this can lead to United Ireland and Republican goals. And the unionists were being told that, you know, you're bringing nationalists into storment, you're giving them a stake in the state, and you're, 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 you're actually uh, uh, protecting the union in Britain by making the people who are fighting it inside, working with it on the payroll, and now part of the institutions. So this create, creative ambiguity has worked so far, but uh, I don't think it can last forever because at some stage, the penny's going to drop. Either the union is safe or it's not. And depending on which way that falls, you know, uh, some people might react to that. I mean, I don't know Chris personally. <laughs> I simply don't know. I'm just trying to look at things on the ground. And I'm, I'm coming at it from my perspective uh, as a Republican and my, and my take on history. I know somebody from another community could have a completely different take on it that I have. I do understand that. Yeah, and I think we should recognise that. There's some stuff that you said here, John, that's really kind of almost like puts things in perspective for for an outsider like myself, you know, a, a view that we wouldn't traditionally be, be um, enlightened to in this country. I'm also aware that there's people on the other side of the fence out there that will be upset now. Sure, and And... All I would say is, look, I'm just a podcaster. I love all people. I love yeah. John, even though he was yeah. allegedly my enemy at one time. And that's just the way I live my life. I don't think war conflict ever suits anyone. I think we're too smart than that, which is why I asked John what what could be a solution that, yeah. you know, ne you're never going to have everyone that's happy. No. But you could find something special that people go, ah, do you know what? We hadn't thought of that before. Because always things have been so traditional. You're either this or you're yeah. this. 
Yeah. Well, hang on. We're cleverer than that. We're cleverer yeah. than that. But I'll say to anybody out there, you know, we're a podcast. We welcome all views. If you feel strongly about this and you want to come on the show, there's an invitation for you, right? You know, right Absolutely. there. You know, I want a podcast, John, just to chat about things because I think there's a better future for young people out there. I think when you go wandering around wearing your underpants on your face, locking oh. yourselves in your houses, not driving your car more than 15 minutes down the road, having a digital ID, which only will work eventually if it's implanted in your body, because, of course, IDs can swap. Sure. Like, I don't think you're going to have the life that I've lived, and I've lived, worked, and traveled in 85 countries on all seven continents, and and it's been a blast. And I don't think people are going to find that sense of education and freedom and lo love for life that I've been fortunate to experience by going along with like the agenda of the World Economic Forum. And they've got Tony Blair in, you know, and, and oh, what's his name? Bill Gates and all the people whose only solutions for life are to cut down on people's freedom. John, could we get down to more kind of uh, just just call it military matters? Because sure. Sure. as much as I love peace, I am also fascinated by the whole complexity of war and young men fighting, and and um, even the, the the simple thing of firing a weapon is a it's a fascinating experience that that I guess the vast majority of people on the planet will will never you know never undergo and yet people watching this podcast now will want me to ask you about sure um so like how, how do you join the ira well um that's a good question how do you join a secret army when you don't know nobody in it i mean if you uh like come if you were from belfast or south Mar or things like that you would know republicans you know there's a way from uh, like i had a sort of different experience that i didn't know anybody but um, to make a long story short and keeping within legal parameters, um, I found out about a guy who was working on a building project, and I was told that he'd been an ex-Republican prisoner. So I got a job on the project. Uh, I sidled up to him. And within about two or three days from my questioning and my line with him, he had a pretty good idea that I was interested in joining the IRA. And at some stage, it took a couple of weeks, I actually put it straight out to him that I was interested in joining the IRA. Now, he'd left the IRA at this stage, and he advised me against it. He said, look, you're going to end up dead or in jail. And he also even said to me that he wasn't sure that some of the leadership could be trusted. Now, I had no idea what he meant by that. Um, that went way over my head. And I just thought, well, this guy's just trying to justify the fact that he's resigned and he's just, you know. But, you know, he must have said it to somebody because eventually a, 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 a Tyrone man uh fellow from East Tyrone approached me and um, said, I hear you're interested in joining the IRA. So what happened then was I had a, a, a series of lectures. There was a bit of a background check. Um, they checked who I was. Uh, my um, my granduncle had, had actually been in the IRA in the, in the Tan War in the, in the 1920s. Uh, he, he'd actually shot the last Irish seaman in the Tan War on the day the truce was signed. But he later joined the guards himself, the Southern Irish police. So, um, you know, and then his brother, my other granduncle, was killed in the Irish Guards in the First World War in October 1916. So it was a typical Irish family, you know, someone one way, someone the other. But anyway, sorry, uh, Chris, to get back to your question. So basically, after I was approached by this Tyrone man, I um, had some lectures and interviews, and eventually I just got I got sworn in. You're given what they call the Green Book. 
and you, 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 I don't remember the exact oath. I think I wrote it in the book, but you just um, agree to obey, you know, the orders of superior officers and all that. And that's it. You're in. But there was no, um, there was no pr progression like you would have in a conventional military where you do this and then you do this and you do that to be qualified. It, it was very ad hoc, Chris, very all over the place. Like the Irish say, it was all over the place like a dog's dinner. You could, you could, you could be at anything. And uh, I found uh, when I when I did get in, the actual training was very poor. Uh, some of the training was actually counterproductive because they're actually telling people the wrong thing. For example, uh, and I do respect that you were in the British Army yourself, um, or the British Marines, sorry. Uh, you know, I remember they were being told in camps the British Army, British infantry helmet was bulletproof to high velocity rifle fire, which it's not. And yet this was universally believed. And, you know, that's probably saved the lives of a lot of British soldiers. So it's just one small example. And I could, you know, I could recite many, many, I don't want to get too much into it, where uh, training was actually counterproductive. And also, um, again, it was very ad hoc. Many of the people who were doing the training had no training themselves, you know. Uh, so uh, this professional, highly um, sophisticated organization that I'd heard about, uh, certainly uh, I had some quite an eye-opener. Now, the, the actual men on the ground were very good. I, I admired the men. I don't blame them because they weren't trained. I blame their leadership. You know, you, Napoleon said there's no bad regiments, there's only bad colonels. And I'm sure you know from your own experience in the Marines, if you, I mean, a good leader is everything. You know, somebody who leads by example, somebody who leads from the front. I mean, that's what it's all about. But if you get some uh, a waste of space lead, leading you, the men are going to end up to be waste of space. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't anyway. It wasn't. The, it wasn't the professional unit, you know, that that I had come to expect. Uh, and a few things I experienced, uh, I found that the IRA in some cases were basically armed civilians, not 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 a cohesive military unit, but just a group of armed civilians. Now there was tremendous bravery, and I know people watching this will say you were just murdering terrorists and you were this and that. And I could break the script. I know what people are going to say, but you you look at the hunger strikes and you know men there refusing life three times a day for up to two months and dying horrendous death just to be treated as a political prisoner in a political conflict. But, I, but I've but i seen stuff that will never be public, can, can never be made public because of the secret nature of the organization, where in a normal, uh, in a conventional army, they would have won the Medal of Honor or the Victoria Cross. You know, I've you know, I, I seen tremendous heroism. And I have to admit, I there were people in it who were total waste of space, shouldn't have been in it, um, very incompetent, uh, uh, were there for all the wrong reasons, as you get in every military. But uh, on the whole, the men on the ground, I had tremendous respect for. And um, m my criticism would be with certain elements of the IRA leadership. Uh, there are others in the IRA leadership who I were, were found very good and you know were very, um, uh, very personally brave and made a lot of sacrifices over the years. But again, because they had no professional military training, they didn't really know how to maybe, you know, uh, train and organize a military thing to uh, a military group to, uh, you know, expand beyond what we were doing. And the IRA was a very low level insurgency. Now to anybody killed in that, I'm sure that's no comfort, but on the whole, it was a very, it was a very low level insurgency. It never really, there was no Tet offensives or anything like that. You know, and, you know, um, even though for, there's three things, Chris, I, I, I've, I've found, or I believe you need to, uh, have any hope of success in a military campaign. You need the skill, you need the capacity, and you need the motivation. Now, in the early 80s and that, if you look at the hunger strikers and different things that were gone, the motivation was certainly there. The skill was lacking. But there were people in the IRA with the skill, had 
had the, we had a leadership that could put that still together. But the capacity was lacking. They didn't have the stuff. In the early 80s, um, the IRA, it's no secret now, it's a matter of public record, had got in massive shiploads of um, weapons from Libya. Uh, it's my understanding, I don't know if this is the fact, but um, because of uh, the British, I mean, this is my understanding from reading, I, I wasn't told this by anybody in the IRA, but I, I, because the British allowed their bases to be used uh, for bombing Libya, Gaddafi retaliated by you know giving the IRA weapons and that. But when the capacity was there, the IRA weren't really able to use it. They didn't have the skill to use it. And I think the leader, certain elements of leadership wanted to use that as negotiating capital to, uh, you know, open career paths for themselves and not necessarily fight the enhanced war of liberation, national liberation that many of us thought we could fight at that stage. So uh, that was a frustrating moment for a lot of Republicans. But, um, you know, that's all hindsight now, Chris. You know, that, 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 that ship has sailed. It's water under the bridge. So... Mm -hmm. But, you know, from my perspective and the perspective, I mean, when I say my perspective, it is my perspective. And I only speak for myself. I speak for nobody else. But I, I, I speak, I know a lot of former IRA volunteers and they would they would totally agree with what I'm saying a lot. Yes. The, the hunger strikes, my gosh, it's hard to really understand the, the level of dedication there, is it, if you're, if you're an outsider? I mean, I remember seeing as, as kids, People just making jokes about Bobby Sands, to be honest, on this side of the water. And but there was a there was a film made about it a few years ago. And I, I I'm not I'm always a bit skeptical of films because they come from Hollywood. Hollywood is a place of magic, and they cast their spell on the yeah. whole planet. They have a very interesting interpretation of of uh, or a selective interpretation of history. But you couldn't take it away from these guys. My God. You know the the to 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 die for your cause, um, and not only to die, but to die an excruciating, agonizing, prolonged death like that. Yeah, you know, it, yeah, it was, and so I think it showed the the, the 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 amazing bravery and commitment within a lot of volunteers. It wasn't reflected at other levels higher up. I'm I'm afraid that was unfortunate mm -hmm. from our from our from our perspective. But um, it was uh, it was an amazing time. Uh, I was at Bobby Sands' funeral, and by pure coincidence. Uh, I can actually see myself in the crowd behind the firing party when they're firing over his coffin. I'm, I can see my head stuck there. Now, absolute pure coincidence. It's like something like you'd see in Forrest Gump. You know, he's everywhere. But uh, I, I didn't know the firing party was coming out there when it came out. It just, but uh, it's an interesting historical, uh, massive uh, funeral. About 150,000 from all over Ireland were there. Really struck a chord. And um, uh, but it's unfortunate that had to happen. But, you know, the British government, uh, Thatcher at the time especially, were trying to criminalize the whole Irish struggle and just basically say that the 800-year struggle in Ireland for national liberation was just uh, an extended crime spree and that uh, everybody involved in it were criminals. And uh, men had to do that to, 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 men had to, do that to protect their dignity uh, as Republicans. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I don't think I could do it, Chris. I really don't think I could do a hunger strike. So... Um, you know, hats off to them. You know, uh, amazing. And there was another thirty men willing willing to die after that when it was called off. Eventually, had to be called off. They were just dying to no to no purpose. And then they eventually got their political status after all that. You know, they got their own clothes. They got they got you know the, the five demands they were making at the time. So uh, they had to go through that first. You know, but um, it was uh, it was it was a reflection. Uh, you know, of uh, of uh, the commitment that some people had. To achieving our goals, you know, uh, bigger commitment than I think I could show. Mm. 
in this day and age of technology and social media and you know, sometimes I look at my phone and because I was using the location app three days ago, I forgot I forgot to turn it off. And I'm well aware the powers that be, if they want, they know every single place I've been for the last three days. In this scenario, it would be a very, a very different thing. Do you, do you think that that kind of conflict could could be possible in this day and age? On the surface, on the, on the face of it, it, it would seem impossible. I mean, everybody, including myself, goes around all day carrying a recorder, a, you know, a, a phone. Uh, and, you know, they have spyware. They, they can turn on your camera. They can turn on the thing. They can turn it on when it seems to be off. And uh, everybody brings their phone everywhere. And uh, they can, you know, it, you would think it's impossible. But what, what I kind of don't understand, uh, and I must maybe study up on it a bit. And, and uh, let me get a, let me make it clear. I, I don't want it to be possible. I hope everything does continue peacefully. But, you know, from a purely military, let's say, academic point of view, you know, we ask ourselves these questions. What, what if this and what if that? And on the face of it, like I said, you would think it would be impossible with the technology they have. And the technology they have is 10 years ahead of what's on the market. For example, the security services have stuff there 10 years ahead of, of the latest stuff that's on the civilian market. Like we don't know what it is. There's no question about that. Ten years from now, we'll be we'll be buying it, but then there'll be another ten years ahead. But um, what I don't understand, Chris, and you you probably have a better understanding of this, is how the Taliban more or less succeeded in in Afghanistan. With all, I mean, I look at pictures of it. it seems to me to be the, there, there's no overhead cover. There, the place is quite open. A lot of places when you see it, and uh, and how did how did they? more or less um, prevail against the United States and the UK and, and the whole world coalition. These guys in sandals and AKs with all the technology and all, you know, I, I mean, you, I, I, that, 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 that's a question I honestly don't have an answer to. Uh, but I often wonder about that, you know. But first thing there, and it's the same with the IRA, what would Sun Tzu say, art of war? Respect your enemy. Right. When you when you lose respect and you start to use you know racial slurs, yeah, or da 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 da, then yeah. then then you've lost the battle. Sure, you know you've lost the battle. But Afghanistan was interesting. Were you there, Chris? I'm just wondering. Were you in Afghanistan? No, that was after my time. Yeah, yeah. Um, the closest I got to the Middle East was our ship. I was on HF, HMS Invincible at the time on the uh, the Royal Marines. Uh, I've heard but, of it. Yeah, heard we, of it. we we were the uh, if I just say security detachment on there, I, I won't. It's I'll, a salt ship, isn't it? It's uh, an aircraft carrier. Oh, sorry. Yes, yeah. An aircraft carrier. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I can understand yeah. the 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 but uh, yeah, there was amph. You know, there's been amphibious ships that are specifically designed for, to detach marines. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but no, that we 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 literally were sat alongside in Portsmouth. And say goodbye to all our families and everything, you know, all the, the emotional, right, we're off to war. Sure. And um, we we were on ship. We were, we were about to leave the harbour and it came over the tannoy. Tahira, Tahira, this is your captain speaking. Just to let you know that the MOD have decided to send the, the Atlantic conveyor instead, right? It was... I should say for anyone who's aware of the Falklands conflict, it's the new Atlantic conveyor, not 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 the one yeah. that ended up at the bottom of the South Atlantic. Yes, yes I God, remember that. God rest their souls. Um, and all around the ship, John, 
in all in all the matlows, the the naval mess decks, all you could hear was just cheering, right? <laughs> like we're gonna stay with off. Yeah. And in the Marines mess deck, there was twelve guys just stared at the floor like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I think. Before all of this, I don't think the 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 T people. I call them the T people because if we say that word too many times, we get flagged. Okay. But the T people wouldn't do business with the West. No, no, absolutely no. You know, yes, they kept the production of the older, uh, you know, smoky yes, stuff, yes. Uh, or yes, should yeah. I say, injecty stuff down. They did a really good job of it. Of course, now that's just now that's back in the CIA hands. That's yeah, production has gone through the roof. I think the mandate of the of of the controllers, as I call them, was right. Let's send the Yanks in to smash the hell out of that country because basically we need the lithium for this electric car myth, as you call it. You know, this notion yeah. that if we have electric cars, we're going to save the planet, which is there's a lot of lithium in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. There's there's two. I believe there's some huge. Sorry to cut across you. I believe there's a huge amount of uranium there too. Oh well, quite possibly, but. All I know is that in South America, I think it's between Bolivia, Peru, maybe Colombia. Somewhere in that region, there's heavy deposits of lithium. It's called the Lithium Triangle. Yeah. The other place in the world that they found these huge deposits is Afghanistan. Oh, okay. Now, if you need, you know, if you need to further your new world order agenda and the next thing is electric cars to keep the people all distracted um, because it's not. It's not sustainable. People, you know, electric car folks is not sustainable. It's still built in a factory that runs on oil. The batteries are still charged on power plants that, or power supplies that run from oil. It's it's smoke and mirrors and of course, yeah. And so, um, you know, they, they they sent these young boys and and girls in there. Not just the Americans, obviously, the Allies. Britain is always going to sign up to the new world order. Uh, smashed the place up a bit, upset everybody, and then literally just left. Literally uh, overnight, left all the equipment. Well, some of us are old enough to remember why we went into that. We went in there because it was alleged a certain atrocity that may or may not have taken place hmm, like about 20 years ago in in <laughs> in, in some yeah. ma- major cities, yeah, yeah. right, was from people trained in that country. Yeah. I, even a child, I think, would... <laughs> could, well, well, could... well one, of the, one of the amazing things to me, and again, I don't know the ins and outs, but there there were 18 hijackers. 15 were Saudi Arabian, were Saudi Arabian, and they attacked Iraq. Well, the thing about it is, is keeping people afraid is important. Uh, when I was a kid in America, you know, we used to have these periodic things where you go in, under your desk for a nuclear thing because the commies were going to bomb us, you know? And then mm-hmm. when that when that was resolved, then they had they had the new Muslim threat or whatever they call it, you know the the, the terrorist threat they call it, you know the war on terror. But one thing I find about Amer- I, I know from America, and I haven't been there in a long time, but one thing that struck me uh, when I left America was the feeling in America very often the strongest country in the world. I mean, nobody could take it on, and yet they're all they're always scared. They they, they keep them afraid all the time that somebody from outside is going to you know, and so we have to have fourteen aircraft carrier groups. And we have to have total world dominance because uh, even though we're only four or five percent of the world's population, we have to police the world, you know. And while I, I you know, I, I would I admire, you know, the concept of American democracy and republicanism, and I admire the concept of the American Constitution, like I do. You know, their 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 foreign policy mm-hmm. is uh, 
you know, and a, and a lot of it, you know, it, it's so strong, you know, so strongly influenced by Israel and things like that. Well, I find I find too like it's very disheartening. Like like I, I like it's not just um, a notion thing for me. Like I I have, a, I have a deep philosophical belief in in the individual in republicanism and in democracy, and to me it's very disheartening the way you know governments uh, more and more they they don't look at people as citizens. They look at them as either consumers or tax fodder. They have they, they, you know or or cannon fodder if they need them for that, but. The, the whole concept of the citizen of the individual seems to be eroded all the time. Uh, I know uh, that's bad for that. That's bad for the future. I think, you know, because yes. uh, yeah, if you're, you, you know, you're either a consumer, you buy our goods or you're uh, you, you pay our, you pay taxes to us. And that's your only real purpose in life. And then you die. <laughs> that's basically. <laughs> John, can I ask you just like on a physical kind of level, I mean, I remember the first time we went out on patrol in Belfast. Yeah. We pepper potted, I think we was all zigzagged out of the yeah. gate because they always said, you know, there's going to be an IRA sniper waiting for you at that gate because they know you're coming out the gate, right? So we, we zigzagged, we bomb burst out the gate, fell into patrol formation, and it was quite surreal, especially I think it was like about six in the morning, the sun was just coming up over um you know over this part of belfast and then nothing really happened for a week and we really fell into feeling lackadaisical like you know what was all that training that we did we've done all this training shooting bombs da -da -da, and 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 we're just in a major city and or we're certainly in the outskirts of a major city and everyone's getting on with their life and literally in one day everything changed we, 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 my, my particular, um, troop or multiple of which we were a four man brick, mm -hmm. we got moved from a place called White Rock. Yeah. The name, name a lot of people will know, uh, to Gerber Park, uh, which is, uh, just off the Ardoin or, or not far from the Ardoin. And, yeah, yeah. Well, so we were supporting this, the, uh, another company, basically. We patrolled out the gate about 11, 11 a.m. or something. As we patrolled out the gate, the IRA blew up the Sanger, the, the observation post, um, on the back road. The, the, I think it was New Lodge Road. I, I might have yeah. got that wrong, but, you know, behind the camp. Yeah. And those booms you hear all over the city. And so we just went in, you know, straight into the drills, cock your weapon, mm -hmm. take cover, look around, obviously trying to identify any, you know, the, 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 yeah. the, the, the firer or, 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 or whatever. And it ended up that we went back in camp. Now, we stayed in camp all day. That evening we went out to protect the ballot boxes or the voting process because traditionally the IRA, or, you know, because it's – it's British democracy, aha! Uh -huh. yeah. But uh, you know they try and interrupt it. Yeah, and uh, we got up there into the Ardoin, and we had a conco with us as a continuity officer mm -hmm. because we were so new. We'd only been sure in 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 you know in, in the north there for two weeks or something. And they attached this army officer from the unit before to show yeah. you 
all the ropes and and I never forget. He went right, fellas. We won't go down this alleyway because it's it's renowned for IEDs. Break into diamond formation. We'll just go across the park. And as I stepped foot on the grass, the rounds just started coming down. And again, immediately, take cover. You could hear the firing mechanisms echoing off the walls around this park. We dive behind this building in, in, in the middle of the park. It was like, I don't know, it was like caretaker's building or something. Or, uh, Jock, who was our tail end Charlie, was just spark out in the middle of this field. All his equipment was thrown <laughs> thrown off him. And um, and I was the first aider. I mean, not only that, just part of your Marines training is you, you never leave a man behind. You know, you're trained to do fireman's carry and you're training. That's... You, you've got to be able to carry a full-grown bloke and all his equipment right. 200 metres in under, I think, 90 seconds or something, right? And so I started running back out for uh, uh, for Jock, and it all was a bit disarray. My 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 um, multiple commander shouted, Chris, get down, get down, get down. And I'm like, I can't do that, you know? Like, anyway... Cut long story short, but Jock popped his head up and you could just see the shock in his eyes. And and he 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 just jumped up, grabbed his electronic equipment, grabbed his rifle and come running over. So I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. I'm ripping open his combat jacket and his and, and, and his we call it a Neba vest, you know, flat jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like, mate, you're not fucking it, you're not hit. He's like, I'm hit, I'm fucking hit, I'm hit. Right. <laughs> Again, cutting a long story short, I, I know the name of the of the IRA chap who from the back of the Ardoyne had fired on our patrol. He'd he'd hit Jock three times, then turned his sights on me because I was the next guy at, at the back, basically the closest guy to him. I remember seeing the ground going just like in 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 the films. And one round had gone through Jock's weapon sling. One had taken the antenna off his electric uh, electronic equipment, and the third one had hit him not in the uh, fiberglass plate that we had, but yeah. just just above it, and it had spun him round with such force, all yeah. his equipment just is yeah. flew off him, John. You know, and um, it it was just one of those moments of reality in life where you think, oh yeah, this is this is all pretty real. Yeah, <laughs> this is, yeah. you know, this is pretty real. I think we had one of our chaps shot dead in the next week. Um, my buddy was on top of the the flats. I th- uh, I, I can't remember if it's the new lodge flats, but he was up there. There was an SAS patrol doing observations in the place at the time, and the I an IRA ASU come round the corner below just leveled up a machine gun. Don't ask me how you do this, but, but they did. And they just let rip at the observation post. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, my friend was, (laughs) my friend said to me, is actually my best mate back then. He said, Chris, we're all like scrabbling on the floor, trying to get to the radio and send a contact report. (laughs) He said, the, the SAS guys are like, huh? Kicked open the windows and just started firing down at this. this." John, it all got very real. You know, it all got 
very real. I, I think... Uh, said so genuinely, um, I'm, not, I'm not just saying this because you were in the Royal Marines, but, uh, you know, for your own information, uh, I've talked to many IRA fellows about, you know, the different British units mm. in the North, you know, just curious their opinion on them. And uh, they, they actually, and I've heard South Amman saying this too, that the Royal Marines were had the best tactics, that they actually had a lower casualty rate than most because the because the the tactics used like you know the pepper pot and bomb burst movement they sort of kept that up the whole time whereas other guys that get lazy you know I don't want to you know point figures maybe the Welsh guards the Royal England regiment they get lazy after a week or two and then they start taking casualties but apparently you know and I and I've, and I've heard this from several sources that the Royal Marines were uh, tactically uh, their tactics were good you know so you know that that added a bit of professional professionals I'm sure saved the lives of your people on, on a number of occasions. Yeah, I got uh, Jock. He he'd done a few tours before. I think he'd done two tours before. He's certainly done one in the south. And the first thing he told me is just okay. keep keep your weapon up all the time, you know, as, as if you're just about to fire. Yeah, you know, none of this like hanging it, having it down. Just just and and that's what we did. We just kept our weapons up all the time. And the second thing he says, you never stay still, never stay still. Yeah. All and unless you're behind cover, yeah. you're moving. You're moving. You're moving. Yeah. yeah. On the area weren't like very highly trained and shooting, so a moving target is obviously harder to hit. Mm. So that that would have stood to you from your perspective. That would have been a a good tactic on your part to keep moving. Mm. No, definitely. The final week where you're thinking, oh my god, I might get home alive now. Yeah. I might, I might, this is, this is, and at the end of any tour, I, I think any service person will tell you, you just want to go home. You just, you just want to go and have a beer with your mates and, and get rid of that extreme tension every single day. And on the last week we had a briefing and our intelligence officer says, right, folks, the intelligence coming in is the Semtex in every lamppost. <laughs> now, I know that's a bit extreme, yeah. but I think the point he was making is you need to take it that any of and and anything can go bang, right? The IRA always said that they were going to take the Marine out on you know this tour. We'd lost one one you know what one chap already, which was that's a fucking eye opener, you know. That last week, I didn't go near the lamppost. I walked down the white line in the middle of the road. Yeah, <laughs> just still zigzagging. Just yeah. mind minding the cars as they and, and they get used to him about you know they 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 yeah. know like just let the British Army do do what they're doing because it's not yeah. it's not worth upsetting any of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yes, yeah, crazy, crazy, just just crazy, John. You know yeah. what? Yeah. What was it like for you as part of an ASU going out on patrol? Well, we didn't. Well, we didn't patrol like that, you know. Uh, but it would have been mostly, um, you know. Uh, setting up operations and uh for most units ago like we've been hope, hoping the brits came to you you didn't go to them sort of thing like of a thing. quick hit and run sort of yeah, thing that type of thing mm -hmm. but my experience of it was uh coming from marine recon and my training and uh, you know the intensive training we had in um ambushes and counter ambush drills to the ira was it was so ad hoc it was so lackadaisical i mean uh very often there was no plan people just diddy bopped walked across fields south Amar was different now south Amar. They would check every field. Everything would be checked. They had did, did great reconnaissance. They had real command of the, of the ground, the landscape. Uh, and that's probably why it was the most effective unit we had. 
But in other areas, no, people just walk across fields and it would be just, you know, as I say, uh, you know, it was like a case of during the IRA in Sierra and by night, you'd just be walking across. But no, um, no, tr no tactical training what to do if you were hit by the Brits, you know, you know, you know no tactical training how to counter an ambush and that type of thing. I'm sure you did a lot of that training, counter ambush drills. And, how, you know, how basically basic military tactics just weren't training the IRA, you know, basically how to move, shoot, and communicate as part of a cohesive team. Uh, you know, you bring in maximum effective fire on the enemy uh, without hitting each other. You know, that's the basics about tactical movement. That's it in a nutshell. IRA had no training in that whatsoever. It was really just, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed more IRA men weren't killed, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, I, I remember being on operations where I was more worried about the, the guy behind me shooting me in the back accidentally than I was about running into the Brits. And I'm, I'm serious about that, you know. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make out like the IRA was stupid or nothing like that. I mean, they were they were basically civilians who joined a good organization. Personally, many of them were very brave, but... It's not their fault they didn't get the training. It's not. It was. It's not their fault. You know, it's the fault of you know people higher up than them that should have been doing their job. In my opinion, you know, but uh, you know the professional training that you would have had would would uh, the IRA would not have had that. You know, um, sometimes capable snipers in that would um, would uh, appear in areas and they could use a telescopic sight and they had you know basically they were good shots, but. Then that man might be killed or captured, and that tactic would disappear in that area because the IRA was very poor at organizational learning, you know, at learning as an organization. It, you know, it very often depended on individuals uh, who had the particular skill or ability. And if that person, uh, for some reason, was marginalized, taken out, or killed, that 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 could disappear, you know. So uh, a, a totally different, uh, totally different organizational culture than a professional army, definitely, you know. But again, you know, there's other things. There was no tours for the IRA. Some of them were there 20, 30 years. There was that anxiety and tension was always with them. Uh, you had the men who died in hunger strike. You had men who went to prison for many, many years, suffered horrendously, maybe on the blanket protest, the dirt protest, came out and, and re-entered the IRA and would maybe be captured again. And so, you know, the, it was a different type of courage and a different type of commitment, but it was still courage. It was still commitment. On a whole, I'm speaking generally, uh, uh, it was very ad hoc. They were very capable in South Dakota. Uh, quite capable in East Tyrone, and different areas would be capable depending on a certain maybe leadership figure appearing, and then if that person left, then they would lose that capability. Whereas, I mean, I'm sure in the Royal Marines, if you had a, a really good sergeant and something happened to him, you all didn't collapse because that sergeant uh, was gone. You you had organizational training, you had organizational uh, maps which to proceed. Mm -hmm. um, I I think to me. The mark of a good leadership is it produces more leaders. If you have a leadership that just produces followers, that's not a good leadership. And I, we tended to have a leadership that produced followers that didn't really count, countenance, you know, new leaders coming up that could maybe threaten their position. Mm -hmm. That was one of the problems I saw. But a good, uh, I mean, a good leadership, I mean, I'm sure in the Royal Marines, you remember when you were training uh, to a set, certain standard, uh, you were always looking for leadership material, looking for people. And when they were promoted, they, people weren't just promoted because... Uh, you know, somebody like them, they're promoted because they met certain standards and criteria that they had to pass and they had to perform and they had to be accomplished. You know, you didn't have that in the IRA. So, um, yeah, the, the lack of professionalism really, um, what, what, what was an issue was a problem, but, uh, it made, it was made up for another, another things like commitment, like, you know, courage, uh, some of the things, you know, about the sacrifices you went through as a volunteer, um, you know, you, you never had money. You, you know, uh, I remember, um, 
you know, every Christmas when I had my dinner, I'd always think the first bite in my mouth, will I be, will I be dead or in prison this time next year? Well, eventually I was in prison, you know, and I did a couple of prison sentences, but that's it. You know, you, you pay your dime, you take your chances as the Yanks say. And, uh, you know, if you don't want to go to jail and you don't want to get killed, don't join the IRA. That's, that's, that's a good first step, you know? Yeah. It should be mentioned there that we were all adults and we're all volunteers, you know, yeah. it, it, it we volunteer for this stuff. Also yeah. should just mention that I never seen blokes work so hard in all my life as what we did when we was over there. Yeah. You know, some guys I think ran themselves into exhaustion. Yeah. Just the sheer, I mean, it was a hot summer. That, that 89 was a hot summer. Yeah. It was blistering hot. You had all this equipment on. I was in prison at that time myself. Uh, you used to just sweat through it all. It 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 was it was pretty insane. But did anyone ever go? No, oh, I don't. I don't want to do this one, Sergeant. <laughs> no, no, never. <laughs> no. You know, it was bang, boom. You brief the briefings were always so professional. The intent intelligence gathering. Um, you know, it never. It but but that's what we were. We were professional. Professional. You know, for example, you, you'd have done, I'm sure you'd have had after what the Americans called after action reviews. When something happened, you'd have reviewed what happened and you know, and learned lessons for the future. The IRA almost never did that. So uh, even though the IRA, talk, you talk about 30 years of experience, I found that you could join the IRA maybe 20 years into the war. And and none of the previous experience would matter to you whatsoever because you wouldn't have heard about it. At least you had a, a, a good officer commanding or a good OC who would bring you through. But it's quite, you know, uh, you know, it, and uh, it, it, it all could have been done, but it wasn't done, you know. And I, it's those small things that frustrated me. You know, I didn't expect, no, I never expected or thought that we were going to do D-Day landings on the coast of England, you know what I mean? But in a small, just professional uh, improvements in our effectiveness as, a, as an organization, uh, that's what frustrated me more than anything. Another thing that frustrated me about it was the capability was there among the men, the willingness was there among the men, but it very wasn't very often wasn't there at leadership level. And I think uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. And But one reason I've come more and more to believe is that British intelligence were doing their work. And in some, in, in a number of cases, they had the right people there. They had mm. the people they needed there. And I Do think you, j- just a bottom dollar question here, mate, or a direct question, I should say. When I look at all those bombs that went off on the, on the UK mainland. Well, I mean, uh, you know, like the Guildford bomb, Birmingham, that was long before my time at, they were horrendous uh, incidents and shouldn't have happened. And it's it, it, it's no comfort to the, to the relatives of those killed that it wasn't meant to happen. It, it was a result of, again, it was typical uh, lack of attention to detail. Maybe uh, three pay phones in a row are vandalized. By the time you got to a phone that's working for a warning, it's too late. You know, it, 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 it's silly things like that that got people killed sometimes too. Ridiculous. Uh, shouldn't have happened. Again, had people been more professional, it wouldn't have happened. But there's no question. I mean, there is no question. And I'm not absolving the IRA of responsibility for things they did that were bad things. I'm not at all. I wouldn't do that. But there were cases, and I think it's going to come out in the next couple of years uh, more, where the dark hand of British intelligence was involved in a number of these incidents. Uh, Definitely. And all all it did was rebound badly on the IRA and put the IRA in, in a terrible position in world opinion. It didn't help us, you know, and then, you know, and uh, it was never IRA policy. I know people will go mad. They'll probably go on your program now and say, what's he talking about? But the IRA did not have a policy of killing innocent civilians. It happened. 
it, um, it, uh, it, but it happened almost exclusively due to incompetence or 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 poor planning or you know uh, lack of attention to detail. But as a policy, there was never a policy. And I remember in the IRA being warned again and again and again: whatever you do, do not risk civilians. You know, I was told that constantly. Now, I wasn't told that in the U.S. Marines when I was trained to call in artillery, naval gunfire, and airstrikes, and I and, and I did it in training. Uh, never once did anybody say to me, geez, whatever you do, don't hit a civilian. <laughs> so, you know, that's it. Like, you know, but um, again, you know, that's the thing I don't like talking about too much because for the simple reason if anybody's listening who lost a loved one to the IRA, saying the IRA didn't mean to do it, that just adds insult to injury. And I do, I realize that. But I would, Chris, never would I have joined uh, uh, an organization that deliberately killed civilians. I just simply would not have done that. I mean, you know that's that's okay for ISIS and these these lunatics, but yeah, you know I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, and that's not yeah. where. I, and you want to look back, Chris. You want to look back on your 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 country's struggle for its full independence and get there someday. And you want to look back with pride at what you did. You know, and you can't look back at pride with murdering innocent civilians. Nobody could do that. You know, uh, and uh, and and the British killed many innocent civilians around the world. Many things they did, but I'm sure many of the British soldiers involved in that, for example. Who would deny that the American and the British troops who attacked Fort, not, you know, Fortress Europe on D-Day, who could deny that they were doing the right and just thing? I mean, I don't think anybody could deny that, taken on Nazi Germany. 20,000 French civilians were killed in Allied bombings in the Normandy campaign. And I'm sure, you know, you know, should those soldiers bear culpable responsibility for that? I, I don't think they should. You know, I think they could stick their head, heads up in, in pride for what they'd done. And, you know, you know, as far as the civilians were killed, uh, I don't know who, who who bears responsibility for that, but uh, I don't think that responsibility should be on the shoulders of of, of, of the infantry soldier who, were, who was fighting the Nazis. Just as like I don't believe the responsibility for some of the atrocities that the IRA accused of doing should be on the shoulder of every IRA volunteer who the overwhelming majority of were never involved in an operation that killed a civilian uh, or anything like that. I mean, I personally was never involved in anything I'm ashamed of or can't stand over. And the vast majority of Irish men can say the same, but there were a small number of incidents where that didn't happen, and it and you know it's it, it's a blemish and a sustain uh, on our struggle, and uh, we wish it hadn't happened, but um, unfortunately sometimes it did happen. Yes, John. What I wanted to come on to was um, well, it's two things really: the the fundraising issue, and we, we used to get hear stories of in in the Irish bars in New York and Boston, and that they'd literally ham round a bucket. You know, for the boyos and yeah, yeah, people would chip in. I, I always found that a bit hurtful, to be honest, because I thought, like, do you guys really understand what's going on over there? That people are losing their lives, and but and the other thing is, w- were you arrested on on the ship? I was. Well, uh, on the fundraising, I was never involved in that fundraising, so I don't I don't really know when I, when I was uh, over there uh, uh, on an arms mission. You know, my instructions were to avoid Irish bars, don't go into Irish, you know, I, I had to avoid all that at all costs. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but you have to bear in mind <clears throat> that in America, like after the famine, uh, but by, by, by the late 1860s, uh, there was over a million Irish born living in the United States. Uh, they they were living in a, in a republic that had thrown off, you know, the British rule. In the past itself, uh, they were, you know, gathering resources. I mean, Ireland at the time was in squalid poverty. A million people had died of starvation during the famine uh, because one crop had failed. All the other food that was in Ireland, plentiful, was being sent really to feed England. 
So there was a lot of hostility, and that uh, hostility uh, for that like Irish nation in in the United States, you know, it 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 it, it, it had a, a tradition that was sort of carried on. You know what I mean? You're right. I mean, a lot of them people didn't know the you know the ins and outs of the situation, but um, it was an emotional response. For example, like in America, I'm sure like you know Jews contribute to Israel. You know that type of thing, even though they might have no connections with it, no connection whatsoever. Uh, a lot of Irish would be the same, but m most Irish fundraising, as far as I know, was done like as prisoners' dependents and all. Like I don't know where the money was going. I honestly don't. But it, it, I don't know of cases where people really come in a book and saying this is for the IRA. I think that's a bit of a cliche. It's a bit stage Irish that uh, I, it may have happened, but I'm I, I never heard it. But I'm not saying it didn't happen. But I think it was mostly prisoners and that type of thing. Uh, now I I don't know remember any prisoners getting any money. So. <laughs> God knows where it went, and uh, some some people in the IRA leadership later became very suspiciously wealthy. But um, yeah, I was arrested on on, on, on uh, the Marina Anne off the coast of Kerry uh, with seven tons of weapons. We were trying to bring it into Ireland, and um, but we were informed on we were informed on, uh, and we were caught by the Irish uh, police and navy, and I got ten years for that. Was that coming from Libya? No, no, that was coming from the United States from Boston. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I wasn't involved in the Libyan armed shipment. What did you feel when, I'm guessing you were boarded by customs? Did you think? Well, I mean, uh, my first feeling was, uh, you know, Irishmen were arresting us for weapons that we were bringing in to fight the British occupation of Ireland. Uh, you know, and uh, but my, my overwhelming feeling was they were waiting on us. So somebody told us. They were waiting at a specific spot. You see, I was told, I was given the coordinates, lo longitude and latitude of a specific place to be in the Atlantic, 200 miles off the coast of Ireland. I didn't know the boat coming out to meet us. I didn't know where that boat was going to in Ireland. But they were waiting uh, behind the Skellig Rocks outside Canmere Bay where we were heading to. I didn't know we were going there. Nobody in the American end knew that, but they knew. So right away I knew. But eventually that... That inform was out uh, a few years later. It it it, it, it and he, he, he boasted about it later. He his name was Sean O'Callaghan. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but uh, he was uh, working for MI5 and the Garda Special Branch. So uh, yeah, he he he, he sank us. <laughs> he did. That's what I mean. I mean uh, the, the the British are very good at infiltrating, very mm -hmm. good, and they'd had him there for a long time before he caught us. You know, he 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 did a lot of damage to us, a lot of damage over the years. Yeah. And, where, you know, where did you serve your time, John? Uh, in Portlaoise Prison in the south of Ireland. Oh, really? Ten years there in Portlaoise Prison in the south of Ireland, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then when I got out, I was only out for 20 months, and then I was caught in London. Uh, we were um, planning to disrupt the uh, electricity supply in London as an economic target, as an economic target against the, 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 the British economy. And uh, again, I strongly believe there was an informer involved there. I have my reasons for believing that. The British deny that and say it was a result of surveillance. But they always say that anyway because they, they don't want to you know, point the finger at an informer. But from things I was things that were said to me during interrogation, uh, I firmly believe an informer was involved. Or else, you know, mm. And I got 35 years for that. And uh, so I got, a, I, did, I got a total of 48 years in prison sentences, of which I did 14 and a half now. When I got to 35 years, I was in Belmarsh, and then I was in Whitemore in different prisons in England, all in the special security units, you know, the top SSUs. 
And it was eventually released four and a half years, I think four, four and a half years later under the Good Friday Agreement, which was great to get out, you know. And, you know, sometimes people say to me, well, you should be grateful to the IRA leadership for setting up the agreement and getting you out of prison. Because I'd, I'd still been there, Chris, to this day. Mm. But, you know, uh, I'd have been more grateful if we hadn't been riddled with informers and we had accomplished our mission without being caught, you know. Um, you know, I didn't want to be in jail. and I didn't want to get killed. But at the same time, you know, to hear some people talk, you would swear that the sole purpose of the IRA campaign was to end it, you know, to find this peace. Uh, and to us, uh, peace was would eventually come when we had an end to the root cause of uh, the conflict in Ireland, which we looked on as as, as the British came to jurisdiction in our country. I'm not fanatical. You know, a, a fanatic doesn't have a sense of proportion. I mean, I do have a sense of proportion, and I do know there's there's other views of the conflict. I understand completely. But I, I believe that, you know, the Republican analysis, the correct analysis. Uh, however, you know, I do believe no one except that other people have their views as well. Mm. You know, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll discuss that with anybody. You know, I didn't know you, Chris, when I was invited, and I was told you were a former Royal Marine and all that, and I didn't know. Probably knew you were going to come on and <laughs> eat me alive, you know, or try to, or whatever. But I, you know, like I said, I have no problem talking to anybody about, about this. I, uh, I'm not ashamed of what I've done. I, I'm proud of what I did. I, I wish we had achieved our goals. But um, like I said, you know, everybody's got a point of view, and uh, I like talking to people, and I, you know, I like hearing their points of view. You know, if you, if you, um, if, well, anyone, I mean, if one, uh, you know, just stays within their own mental orbit. And won't listen to anybody else, sir. Like I read, I I, I I go out of my way to read papers that are hostile to republicanism, and that because I like to read what they're saying. I like to get sort of my head around their 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 perspective, because you have a better chance of winning if you understand who you're fighting and why they think the way they think. You know, but people who just read or study to confirm their own prejudices never can break out of that. You no, know, you just can't break out of that mindset. You know, and uh, so. That's basically it, Chris, you know, in mm -hmm. a nutshell, I think, you know, that's the way I look at it anyway. Yeah. And you've been um, you've been very forthcoming, mate. And it's, like I said to you before, I think we push record. Communication is everything. Sure. And we've got to talk about these things, you know, Absolutely. and we've got we've got to understand other people's perspectives. Otherwise, we're never going to come to a, a you know, a, a resolution for the next generation. Yes. The the final thing I wanted to run by you. This was some. This was one of the most fascinating things I learned from my my time uh, on service over there, and it was all to do with the IRA quartermasters, who obviously had a big job because they had weapons coming in from here, from there, from you know, as as yeah. as, as, as we discussed, Libya, da da da, and sure. of course you got to hide them somewhere if you're in a you know, if 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 yeah. you're in an underground conflict, you've got to put these weapons somewhere. And we we had experiences that in Belfast. We would a search team would go in, they'd literally pull back the carpet in someone's front room, and there'd be a, a hide under under. Mm -hmm. And of course, by the time we got there, there was I think they found we found one shell, yeah. <laughs> like empty shell or something. Um, other times we found a lot more, you know, a, a few barrels full of explosives, a few AKs, this, this, this sort of thing. But one of the most fascinating things I heard was that there was a chap, he come up with this theory that the quartermasters had a, 
a code or a sequence. This is not the right words. And and someone managed to crack it. When you went to a, let's say, a field in a countryside and there was intelligence that was, there was an IRA cache sure. in this field, they worked out this clever system that the quartermasters were using and and it was something like, and don't quote me on this, it was a long, long time ago, but it was, you know, if there's like an oak tree in the field, a big old oak tree, yeah. you went to that oak tree, you went a certain amount of paces from that, and then possibly you went on another another bearing, I don't know. Yeah. And, and apparently this guy cracked a lot, a yeah. lot of finds, found an awful lot of weapons by using... Yeah using this system there, there'd be a lot of truth to that uh but i never heard of a system or a particular code like that uh you know so many paces from the tree and so many paces that i never heard that now but i do know that if you had stuff in, in a field along a riverbank or whatever you had to have some frame of reference in the dark to find it again so you would have to have something like that or you know you couldn't find it and it, it would also have to be something that was permanent like you couldn't have a particular hedge that a farmer could cut down and the next time you go, it's gone. So like an oak tree that's been there for 200 years is probably going to be there in another five years. You know what I mean? So there would be a lot of truth to that, Chris. But um, I admired people who kept weapons because um, I, I was in houses and, you know, people who kept weapons, people would say sometimes, you know, oh, how you know, active service is so dangerous and, you know, you could risk prison and, you know, we really admire you. And But I would think, no, I admire you because, look, at I can take a break. When I'm not an active service or a volunteer in active service, like we can take a break, we can go somewhere, we can put the feet up. But 24-7, you've that stuff under your floorboards. You're always, you can never relax. So, well, sometimes maybe they found it hard to understand how we could put up with the stress of our situation. I kind of sometimes thought, well, how do you put up the stress of yours? Because you're always in trouble. If they come in and find that, you're, you're, you're fucked. You know? <laughs> Excuse my French, you know. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so it swings and roundabouts. I mean, I suppose just different people have different um, different character traits that make them good at some things and bad at others, you know. But yeah, I certainly admired uh, people who kept stuff because they were always in danger. But um, I never, like I said, Chris, never heard of that particular code. But you, you, you've got you've got the gist of it, right? You know, you would have a, you would have to have some marker you could find. I mean, that's nearly obvious. And it's possible maybe he was in an area where a particular quartermaster did that. He, that that's quite possible that's quite possible I, I i don't know for sure but i certainly wouldn't say that's not true it has a ring of truth to it yeah well the key to control through history is dominating the narrative like you know if, if you can, can control and dominate the narrative uh that's what control is all about and and uh, the, the people that do that don't don't like anybody who challenges that narrative you know no. and that, that, that's the thing and yeah, I look back. I, I'm a, that's one of the reasons I'm a great admirer of, of the um, of the Enlightenment. And uh, like I remember reading about, you know, Galileo saying, it "Was I think it was yeah, it was Galileo the um, that the Earth went around the Sun, the Sun didn't go around the Earth, and this was blasphemy." And he was brought up to a trial in the Vatican. This boy could have been executed for this belief. You know what I mean? How he fought his corner and all because he saw the obvious truth, and yet every person. Uh, in the world, every educated man, every man of learning said, no, that's not the truth. Mm. But he saw the truth. And we all know the truth today. So, um, you know, sometimes, you know, a lesson from that is sometimes a perceived truth is not the truth at all. You know, and people have to question even what's perceived as the truth at times. 
and to question things. And I think questioning is good, and that's why dialogue is so important. And uh, I know it's important to question things and to examine your own conscience. And, uh, you know, anybody be who believes they have all the answers are, uh, are, 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 da are dangerous people as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <You know? laughs> John, on that note, can I thank you so much for coming on the show? Thank you. You know, like I say, communication is everything. Um, I wish you all the very, very, very best. And uh, um, I'm sure our paths are going to cross in the future. Hopefully, Chris, and I wish the same to you. Yeah. Thank you to John and thank you to you guys for listening. Like I say, if you've got something to say, folks, rather than get all upset and, you know, start making accusations about people which you you know are not true just ping me an email and if and if there's something we can do on the show something to further the peace process um and create a better lives for the little ones then uh then i'll, I'll look forward to that thank you chris thanks chris you're welcome thanks. john massive love to you all friends if you can you like and subscribe we'd really appreciate it john stay on the line so i can thank you properly cheers folks Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.